In this series, we're looking at the seven capital vices, right? Sometimes they're referred to as the seven deadly sins. And as I was preparing for this week, I, I came across a story that it resonated so deeply that I was like, oh, I just have to be able to share this because you will understand and feel this, and not in a bad way, okay? <laughs> um, but in a really good way or interesting way. And it was a story about uh, a little girl who had gone into a, a, a playroom area and there was a bunch of soccer balls that were there and she had picked up a soccer ball. And she was the first one in the room and as she began to play with the soccer ball, she enjoyed the soccer ball and just was having a blast. And as she did that, she could have put the soccer ball down and picked one of the 18 others that were there, but she just liked that one and it was fun. And then a second person, a second kid came into the room. And as they looked at all the soccer balls, it was time for them to pick one. Which ball do you think they wanted? The one that the first kid is playing with, right? The one that the first kid is playing with. And, and it's funny because here's why. The reason they want the one that the first kid's playing with is because the first kid is happy playing with it. And there is this thing inside of us when we see that that soccer ball is making you happy. Therefore, if I have that soccer ball... It will make me happy. And so instead of picking one of the now 17 other soccer balls, I, I think this is going to, we all know this, right? The second kid's going after that soccer ball. The second kid wants the one that the first kid has. But the first kid now, wait a second. You want the one that I picked? Why do you want the, wait, I must have picked the best soccer ball. The fact that you want the soccer ball that I have means this is the better soccer ball, even though all these other soccer balls look the same, and I'm sure, but you must know something about this, that you want this one, not those. So I need to keep this one now. I need to hold on to this soccer ball and not let you have it. It reinforced you did pick the best one. And then begins what we all are familiar with. The tug of war, the yelling, the screaming, the give me a turn, it's my time, it's, you know, they're not sharing, I want it, it's mine, I had it first. Anybody else resonate with this? Have you ever been a part? Okay. Yes, where's my parents, teachers, babysitters, grandparents, can I just get an amen here? Yes, you know this feeling. And, and we always say something to try to, like, placate. Listen, why don't you play together? It'll be so much more fun. Oh, just grab another ball. They're all the same, right? In those kids, they're not all the same. They're not all the same. They don't want to share. They don't want to trade. They don't want to take turns. And it's amazing how kids can fight over something so simple, isn't it? The truth is, though, this isn't just a kid's issue. This is a human issue. This is a human issue. How many best friends do you know have been divided because they've chased after the same boyfriend or girlfriend? That, that friendships have been completely lost. How many business partners and partnerships inside and outside of work that you're like, oh, we're, we're really doing it, have been lost and ruined over a client that you tried to acquire and they tried, and you had to have it. I have already received Black Friday flyers trying to convince me that it is my duty to try to get to their stores as early as possible to get the limited edition or limited amount deal so that I get it before you do. And I have to do that because if I get it, it'll make me better over you. You see, these are little ways that the vice 
of envy shows its ugly little face. And when we talk about a vice, we're talking simply about the idea that things can grip what we are and hold on to us so tightly. And that's the way a vice works. We all know that, right? But today, as we look at it, we're looking at envy. And, you know, envy's a beast, let me tell you. And, and I don't know that we always have the um, best idea of what envy really is, so we just kind of make things up. But envy, the more I've understood it, I gotta tell you, um, this week I've learned it's far more present in my life than I'd like to admit, and I see it far more accepted and celebrated in our culture than I thought. And envy is one of those words that, you know, we use this word, but I don't think we always know what it means. We use phrases like, um, you know, green with envy, and we don't even really know what that means. Or um, we become envious about how someone's hair looks or their, you know, the car that they drive. And I think those aren't the best use of the word envy. Envy is, you know, those are more like coveting and jealousy, and we'll talk about those a little bit later to help figure out the differences. But envy, really, when it comes down to it, it it's the feeling of unhappiness at the blessing and the fortune of others, okay? Uh, th I like the way Rebecca DeYoung says it. Uh, she's just got it nailed. She says, envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. That's good, isn't it? It's nice when someone else says something so wonderfully, you're like, I don't have to say anything more. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. And of all the capital vices that we're going to talk about together, envy is the one that is absolutely no fun at all. There's no joy found in envy. Uh, the best way to picture envy in your head and in all sorts of books and poems when they write about envy, envy is always like the alpha pack leader of a wolf pack, right? It, it never runs alone. Envy always has wolves with it, but envy is the alpha of the pack. Envy is all about comparison, criticizing, complaining, ingratitude, hatred. And if we don't figure out how to take this alpha beast out, it will completely kill our ability to love God, our ability to love others, and our ability to love ourselves. And so today what I'd like to do is to look at a story at how envy might take its roots. And then, then not only look at how it takes its roots, but what does envy end up growing into? And how does it show itself? What are the fruits that we get from envy? And then how can we then, because of Jesus Christ, who we just sang about, whose name is above all other names, how do we loosen this vice on our life? Because it's going to ruin us and destroy us. And that is not what Jesus is about. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to turn to the story and to the book of 1 Samuel that uh, Brianna had read for us um, so wonderfully as we, as we entered into this time. And if you would just go ahead and start, instead of going straight to uh, chapter 18 and 19, if you could just jump over to chapter 9. We'll start a little earlier. And almost like story time last week, I feel like sometimes stories help us understand what what we need to know better than just here it is. As you're turning to 1 Samuel, this is a story um, about Israel and how they're kind of coming to terms with who they are. Very early before this, they have been freed from Egypt by God and they leave these 400 years of slavery and God says, I'm going to give you this promised land that you're gonna walk into. 
they obviously uh, can't get their act together and God says you're going to spend 40 days or 40 years wandering the desert and then the next generation is going to take over the land. And so this next generation is so excited. They take this land, they begin to step into it and they fight all these wars and battles to win the land. They get the land and nothing is scarier than trying to figure out how to govern yourselves. <laughs> it is hard work. And so they are trying to honor God, but they've got a lot of issues in the camp, as you can imagine. And so God does something. He raises up uh, men and women, and he calls them judges. And their job as judges is to kind of, you know, bring some order, and they do it really dysfunctionally, but they bring some order to these different tribes and, and pockets of Israel. What happens is, is as they begin to look around, they've got their land, they don't like this judge system, and they compare themselves to the other nations around them and they say, you know what? They've all got kings and they seem like they're doing really well. We need a king. And so they complain and they complain, we want a king, we want a king. And the more established they got, they realized this was their desire. In 1 Samuel 9, what we read about is a man named Kish. His name is Kish, and, he, and he's a pretty wealthy man, and he loses his donkeys. I guess this was a regular occurrence. Um, but it was such a big deal that he sends his son, Saul, you need to go find these donkeys. This is how 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, describes Saul. Check this guy out. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Our first intro to Saul ain't so bad, huh? I mean, I, I wonder what would be said about me the first time. And I'm like, I, it's not that. But man, if that's what people remember you for the first time they write about you, that's pretty solid. And, and, and when Saul goes out to find these donkeys, I don't know if he's excited that his dad sent him and he's like, good, let me get out of the house or, you know, what his deal is. But what I do know is he eventually runs after hitting a bunch of cities that he can't find these donkeys, he runs into a man named Samuel. And Samuel happens to be one of the last judges and the first prophets of this nation. And, and he runs into Samuel who tells him something he didn't expect. In verse 20 of that chapter, he says, don't worry about the donkeys that were lost three days ago. They've been found. And I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. All right, he, he just went from chasing donkeys to stepping into his destiny, right? What, what he thought was his problem is not his problem, and actually there's something way bigger going on. And later in chapter 10, we see this picture of Samuel taking some oil, anointing, um, you know, Israel, or anointing Saul to be king over all of Israel, and then all of Israel rejoices. Yay, right? Um, they celebrate can we all agree that Saul's in a pretty good place in life right now? Right? You, you went out on an errand and came back king. That's a good day. And so this is what he does. He's handsome. He's powerful. He's anointed. But being king has its challenges. And over the next couple of chapters, it's much more difficult than chasing donkeys. And he goes to war with handfuls of armies and different nations. And the Philistines always seem to be like the issue that he's dealing with. He has to deal with times that Samuel asks him to do things like wait. And he doesn't want to wait. And so he just kind of moves ahead really quick. Because, you know, when you're leading, you got to move things quick. Why? Because people expect it to go quick. But then they complain when you're too quick. 
but he's going to do it. He's got to figure out what's going on. This is what I have to do. And in the midst of all of the success that he has in battle after battle and people coming together and the nation all unifying, he takes his eyes off God who anointed him to be king and he starts to focus on that biggest problem, the Philistines. They just won't go away. And, you know, this group of people with Israel, they just always had beef with them. They're always fighting. And so it was almost like, you know, uh, baseball season's coming. Great. Now it's time to fight with the Philistines again. That's, it's, it's February, spring training. All right, everybody stretching. Philistines are next month, you know. That's the way it kind of worked. And so they knew what was coming. And so there's this one moment when they go to battle and instead of the kings and the nations fighting each other, the Philistines are like, wait, wait, what, we got a different idea. What if we just go 1v1? 1v1 and winner of the battle just wins the battle and then we're all done with this. All right. And so the Philistines send out their champion, this man who's bigger than life named Goliath. He stood, uh, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else. It's interesting his description when we think about Saul's first description, isn't it? He stood out. This is a battle like all of us would be on pay-per-view ready to see. And instead of his leading his army, you know what Saul does? He kind of sits back and he's like, I don't want to do this. I'll tell you what, I'll give my daughter and I'll free you from taxes. And you, you, so you get a wife and tax-free if you beat him 1v1. And for weeks, no one wants to do it. And every day, Goliath comes out to taunt them and they don't want to fight. Now, no one's dying. And no one's winning. And then we're introduced to a shepherd boy who wasn't old enough to fight in the war yet, or he would have been brought right in. He's actually a shepherd. And, and, and the shepherd is sent by his dad to go bring lunch to his brothers. He doesn't even get to go, like, go watch the war. Go see. He's like, I think they're hungry. It's been a while. Make sure they're eating. And so that's what he does. He brings lunch. And then gets the lowdown that this guy keeps taunting. And he's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. You know the shepherd man, his name is David. And David takes up the charge. He says, you can't say this about our God. And everyone backs down. And so David takes up the mantle. He defeats Goliath. And this is where we're going to pick up our story of envy. This is where we're going to see how envy can take roots. And it's the exact passage that Brianna read for us. Goliath is killed, and now in verse 6, this is what 1 Samuel 18 tells us. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They're going for King Saul, right? Then they sang and they danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his ten thousands. Come on. Paul is, or, or Saul is returning home from war that they've won. Like the 1v1, we got it. I didn't have to fight it. It's time to party like we do every time I come home. And now it is happening. There's minimal losses. The ladies are singing. And these lyrics are different. The lyrics are different than the last time I came home. Why, why are they crediting David? Wait, wait. They're crediting Saul with killing thousands. He didn't do anything here, did he? And then David, they're crediting with killing tens of thousands, and he had been off to war because there's a little bit after, right? But this is Saul's party. But they're singing about David? 
I'm sure he's thinking, why are they comparing his kill count to mine? No, 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 no. You see, here's the thing about envy that's really interesting. Envy never starts just envy. Envy always starts with comparison. Envy always starts and begins with simple comparison, and it almost always starts very close to home with people that you are in natural relationships with. Why? Because we can watch them. Someone far off doesn't matter. Someone close to home, we begin to compare. Look at verse 9. This is what Saul does. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. He's watching him. He, he made sure that he was close because envy starts with just simple comparison, right? No big deal. And it quickly moves right into a, a rivalry. And here's what's wild, right? Here's what's kind of crazy. This rivalry that we see, David doesn't feel it, does he? David's not at war or comparing himself to Saul. He, he's just glad that he was part of this war, that he was able to be used, right? He, but Saul, Saul is in competition with someone who doesn't even know there's a game going on that they're measuring each other. And this rivalry that they have, here's where it stinks. The rivalry doesn't just start because of comparison, but it's almost always rooted in resentment. This resentment that Saul's got, I can't believe this. What is he doing? It's almost always rooted in a sense of distorted Injustice. Something's off. Something's not right, and I need to take care of it. And, and I need to keep an eye on him. Just look at what verse 8 says. It says, this made Saul very angry. What is this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. He's already ended the story, and nothing has happened right? Envy is forcing him in this moment to forecast the future, and he's forecasting the future out of this position of fear that he has something to lose. Can you see how envy hunts in a pack? Can you see how envy is never alone? Comparison, rivalry, resentment, this distorted sense of injustice. He's going to take what was rightfully mine because it's, I was anointed, and this is mine. All of this because of two lyrics in a stupid song. Two lyrics, and my man's flipping out. I mean, come on. Saul's already made him king in his mind, and David, David hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything but brought lunch because his dad asked and then stayed close to the king because he's asked him to and done whatever the king wanted. You see, this is what's wild. All these emotions that we see here, all of these issues, they only happen inside of us. They only happen inside of us. And Saul is not like, you know, oozing out, you know, distorted injustice. He, he's, he's in his brain thinking, this is what's going on. He's not telling everybody he's at war with David. Not we're at war with the Philistines, but, but this is my rival. I've got, like, this is all internal. And I wish this is the only place where envy left Saul, but it's not. It's really just the beginning. His pack is about to get aggressive. You see, envy, when it starts to take its roots, begins to gather all these others. And when it gathers the others, we become emboldened to do something stupid. And Saul's sin has openly swung open the door 
and said, you know what, fine, I'm going to disobey what you want, God. And now there's a demonic spirit that we read about that actually takes him over and makes him run around his house like a madman, is how we read it. He runs around his house like a madman to the point of being so frustrated with David. David's just kind of like chilling out on the steps playing his, you know, harp or lyre. I think they're like the same thing. Um, but, you know, he's playing his little, you know, instrument. And it's, sometimes it calms Saul, Saul down. But at one point, Saul looks at him and all of these things bubble up to a point where now it's time as a pack to get them. And you know what he does? He finds a spear. And in his envy, he rips up the spear and just, he tries, what we read, is to pin David to the wall. Bing, bing, bing. You know, like, uh, I'm just saying, if this is your job environment, it's okay to get out. If this is what happens to you at work, don't work there. This doesn't happen to David once. It happens to him twice. He stays there because God's not said go home. He stays there because when he plays, sometimes it does help Saul. He wants to help Saul. Twice David tries to, or Saul tries to kill David with a spear, and each time he escapes. And so Saul now, his fear begins to grow, and so does his hatred for David. And since envy... Man, envy is sneaky. It's jealous. It's pack hunting. If Saul can't take him out himself, what envy does is it begins to use others to take out your rival and your enemy. He tries uh, to give his oldest daughter to David as a wife, thinking, all right, this will start the process because, you know, I just need to get him and I'll make him win his or her hand in battle and I'll give him a really hard battle. And what David says is, I'm not even worthy to be your son. I can't, I can't do this. And he's like, man, I can't get him that way. And so Saul's other daughter, she falls in love with David. And Saul's like, I've really got to take advantage of this. I have to use this to my advantage. And so Saul then goes and gets all of his little soldiers that he's got, people that are friends with David. And he's like, listen, you got to convince David that it would be so ideal to be my son-in-law. That, that who wouldn't want this? Convince him that I love him. Convince him that my daughter loves him. You know, convince him that you love him. Like, whatever it takes to get him to say yes to marrying my daughter. And they're like, okay. And so they go to David. David, his daughter loves you. You, you could be a son-in-law. Come on. Just say yes. And David's like, if he loves me, and she loves me, and, and you know what? I... I Okay, and what Saul does is he's like, gotcha, gotcha, and he sets up a task so hard, no man would want to do it, and no man should be able to complete it, and not only does he do it, but he completes it, and he completes it twice as good as the king had asked. Deceit, lying, they run with envy. Right? In 1 Samuel 8, verse 22, that's that verse that we read. Then Saul told his men, the king, tell David, the king really likes you. So do we. Why don't you accept his offer? If you find yourself in a rhythm of lying and deceit, they may not be your issue. They may be rooted in envy. So Saul come, or David comes back completing the task. And this is how the chapter comes to a close. In verse 28, it says, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, 
and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him. And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Saul didn't really feel like he gained a son-in-law here, did he? He lost a daughter. The narrative in his head is now he's lost his kingdom. And he has made David his lifelong rival and enemy. And David thinks, boy, he loves me. I'm accepted in this house. Each time David succeeds, Saul feels worse. Do you know why? It's because envy is always rooted in our own insecurities and our own distorted identities. This all began with Saul chasing donkeys. I'm doing what my dad said, and now I find a destiny to be king, chosen by God, celebrated by the people. How many battles had Saul won before this moment? Tons that they would know how to sing songs about him. How many songs did they sing and have about him? I'm sure a lot. But his insecurities, his lack of a solid identity of who he was gave root for envy to begin to grow. And now all of these other sins and behaviors start to flow from that. And I know that, like, listen, Jimmy, this is a story about kings and battles and Goliath and David. Like, that's great. But if we go back to two kids fighting over a soccer ball, Nothing's really changed, has it? Nothing's really changed. If you and I live from a place of insecurity without knowing who we are, we all have the potential to be grabbed by this vice of envy, to head down a road where we become so bitter when others have it better. Can we just be really transparent this morning and admit that envy might be more insidious than we make it out to be? Inside the church and outside the church, this pack is wreaking havoc. Our lives are filled, aren't they? They're filled with comparison, with criticizing, with complaining, with ingratitude, and with hatred. We are in a constant state of jealousy and coveting because they're part of the wolf pack. You know, jealousy is really like wanting what someone else has, right? That, that is jealousy. Envy is angry that the other guy has it, right? That's the difference. Jealousy is wanting what they have. Envy is angry they have it. When we talk about coveting something, coveting is aimed more at your neighbor's stuff. Envy is going to be directed at your neighbor. There's a huge difference here. I love the way that Joe Rigney describes coveting. This is the way he says it to his kids. Coveting is wanting so much it makes you fussy. Oh, see, it's the soccer ball thing again. It's just that simple, isn't it? We've all wanted something so bad it's made us fussy. Admit it, hasn't it? It could be a job. It could be a person. It could be a thing. When we don't get it, it makes us fussy. Can you think of someone in your mind right now who when their name is mentioned in your presence, you start to get fussy. I'm I'm gonna give you 10 seconds of silence. Whose name gets your heart racing a little, gets your mind thinking and your soul stirred in not a good way? Who makes you fussy? 
as some of you may have thought of politicians or far-off people, you're making it easy on yourself because you don't want to take accountability for envy being so close to home. If you're new to Crossbridge, we never play it safe here. We want to be transformed into the image of Christ, which means we start at home. Maybe that person is in your school. They walk down the hallway and you see them and you get stirred. Maybe that person is in our church. And sometimes you don't want to go to church because you don't want to be near them and you're frustrated with them. Maybe that person is in your classes. Maybe that person is in your family. They're at your job or they're in your neighborhood. If someone is coming to mind, they make you fussy, it might be worth pausing to say, why? Why do they make me fussy? And I think it's because, I like the way Joseph Haller says this. He says, there's no disappointment so numbing as someone no better than you achieving more. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Right? Envy hits us all. So think about this. How do you handle, personally, how do you handle if your friend that you studied with in school and you're like, we've, we've, we've studied the same amount, we put the same amount of energy into this and that test or project grade comes back and theirs is better than yours. What are you feeling? What do you feel when you're at the same party as someone and you put the same post up that they did? but their post gets more likes and more comments and more engagement, and yours is left flat. What do you feel and how do you handle if your coworker is applying for the same job you're applying for and you think you're better equipped to get it and they get the promotion? If you're a parent or a grandparent, this is nasty. Um, usually we're not so envious at other people's kids, but parents need to be very careful because envy can take its roots in other parents' kids' accomplishments and failures. As your kids get older, what happens when, when your kids' friends get better grades than your kids do? What happens when the other person's kids get that, that spot on the team, that, that part in the play that you think your kid deserves? You're not ticked at the kid, but usually how do you look at the parents? What's the feeling that comes into this? What happens when you've been working so hard in parenting your child and then now it's coming to the time where they're supposed to go to college and they don't want to, but their friends are? How do you handle that moment? Or when they don't get into the college they want, but a kid who you think is less than gets into it. How do you handle these things? Grandparents and those who are older with adult kids, how do you handle when your friends have another grandchild they're celebrating and you're waiting? You've been waiting for yours. Can you really celebrate? Or is it another bitter in their betterment? Who is it that you have an unspoken rivalry with today? Who is it that you're carrying resentment with? Because if there is rivalry and there is resentment, there can be no love. Envy is the absolute death of love. 
And you and I need to do all that we can to kill envy before it kills us. This is what envy does. Envy is nothing but a loser's game. There is no win. Even, we lose even if we think that we win, right? Winning at envy really means that we're destroying the possibility of actually loving somebody because we're rooting against them. If it's in our own securities, we're celebrating their downfall to validate our own insecurities, which means we can't even love ourselves the way that we've been designed by God. Envy destroys us, it destroys them, and then usually envy leads to a place when other people are getting better, we say, screw you, God, this is your fault. I can't believe you dealt me this. This is the hand that I get, that's not fair. Ultimately, we resent God and how he has made things to go like it's his fault. If you struggle with envy and you feel like this might be one of those vices that gets a hold of your life, I do believe there are two ways that we can step into, and there's lots of ways, but I want to give you two quick steps that you can take to begin to to loosen the vice of this in your life. And make no mistake, the deeper that this is rooted in your life, the longer this process takes. And for all of us, I think there's going to be certain vices that are just issues we've got for our whole life that we're going to battle. Not all of them, but some of them are going to rest a little bit deeper. All of them are going to take a lifetime to battle but that's what we do together, amen? We do this together, not to shame each other or to blame each other, but to say, I believe that God does not want this to take hold of your life because he has something so much better for you. And the first thing, if we want to begin to take all of these things out is to kill envy, you gotta ground yourself in grace. Oh, I beg you, would you ground yourself in grace? If envy's roots are in our insecurities and in our distorted identities of who we are, then we need to constantly go back and remind ourselves from a book that we believe is, is God's word to us, the truth that Jesus has done so much for us. Oh my gosh. Remember, who does Jesus hang out with when we read about him? It's not the powerful, it's not the influential. He's affirming, he is lifting up everybody who starts at the lowest place. Those who feel forgotten and less than, he's like, oh, these are my favorites. Not the people who feel like they've got it all together. He was reaching out to like the social misfits of the day. His love for them had nothing to do with all the awesome things that they accomplished, did it? Not at all. It was because of who they were created in the the image of God. It it didn't matter if they had all the stuff and the coolest new things. He got to hang out with them because he loved them. To the point where he gave his life for them because he loved them. Killing envy means that you have to come to terms with the truth that every single one of us desire unconditional love from people and we build up a wall to protect ourselves because our insecurities feel too great to be loved. We all sit in a place where we think we're less than, and God can't love me. Sure, Jimmy, you could say that for the people around me, but not me. Yes, you. Yes, you. And the moment that you really believe that God loves you, and you ground yourself in the grace of God, that there's nothing you can do to outsin his love and grace and forgiveness for you, when you really believe it, you will begin to pull these roots out and not look at others and say, man, I'm glad I'm better for them or rooting against them, but you'll say, 
I believe that they need this grace too. I think this is why scripture tells us all the time to confess our sins. We at Crossbridge believe that there is something so beautiful about confessing our sins out loud to each other. You know, out loud? What are you, crazy? Yes. Yes. Because it loses its hold when we say it out loud. Because envy can't take root. When's the last time you told someone that you resented someone else? We don't do that, do we? Do you know why? Because we're scared in our insecurity that the person we're telling will think we think that about them. No weird? But that's what we do. I don't know why. But Jesus says, get this stuff out so you're not dealing with it. Saying all those things out loud doesn't diminish your, diminish your value. It doesn't diminish your worth. Simply because God loves you, he approves of you, he has died so that he could be in relationship with you. So that you won't have to look at everyone else and say, I wish the worst on them. But you can look at him and say, you've given the best for me. Which is the second way to kill envy is to cultivate kindness and gratitude. I almost feel dumb saying this because if we go back to soccer balls, what are we doing? We're, there's, there's 17 other balls. How great is it that we have all of these balls? You should be grateful we have a, a house that we could play in and balls that we could play with. That we've, come on, right? We've all done it. This is what we try to teach our kids, but we do not apply that to the rest of our lives, right? If you've stepped into those two kids fighting, that's what we do. And if shared, it'll be more fun than not to them. Envy wants us to tear the other person down and take what they have as ours so that we have it and they don't have it. Kindness is about rooting for others and setting them up to win. That's what kindness does. It roots for others. It sets them up to win. And this is what God has done for us through Jesus, hasn't he? We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his kindness. But he's given that to us through the cross, which is what we celebrate at communion. That his kindness and his gratitude, his favor is on us. And think right now for the person who makes you fussy. How can you extend kindness to them? Because this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. How, how can you actually move to a moment where you can pray blessings on them, not curses? Instead of texting them behind their back this week, what would it look like if you wrote them, hand wrote them an encouraging note about something specific that was good that they did? Oh, I could see you turning. You're like, uh-uh. Right? To kill envy, you have to seek the betterment to fight your bitterness. You have to seek betterment to fight bitterness. Don't underestimate the power of gratitude. We just sang about all the reasons we should be thankful to God. Make a list of the things that you're thankful for and gracious and God has given you. Not the things you've won, you've accomplished, and you've secured on your own power, but what has God given you? With a heart of gratitude, you can act out of the kindness that God has shown to you. Maybe, maybe the fir that's your first step. If you're like, there's no way I'm writing a note and there's no way I'm praying blessing. Okay, maybe your first step is to just stop and write a list of the things you're grateful for that God has been kind to you. Maybe write a thank you note to God. Start there. But if you don't kill envy, Envy will kill you. Thankfully, we celebrate Jesus Christ and the cross. This is where we will always end as a church and our time of worship will always culminate at communion where we can say, Jesus, through you, I, I can find forgiveness for envy. You can start 
to loosen when I'm gracious. You can start to root out these issues. And that person that I hate, you love them. Help me see them the way that you see them. Help me love them the way that you love them. I don't want this anymore. What's it going to take for you to kill him? If you're carrying something so deep right now, I need to tell you after service, we have our prayer area in the back where we want to pray for you. And just, you, you just get it out. Get it out. I, I, I can't stand this person. They need to deal with this. I don't like it. And, and you're not allowed to use the Astros or, you know, LA is your, I hate them. Okay, it's close to home stuff. Um, you, you feel it. I know you feel it because I feel it. I still wrestle with this. But we want to pray for you. Don't leave here holding on to envy. Leave here thankful that God has met you. And so we'll be available in the back to pray for you. But at this time, I would like to invite you to stand as we celebrate communion. And at Crossbridge, we have what we, we call in many churches an open table, where if you've placed your trust in Jesus, this is open for you to celebrate. And we do it around the table because we believe that we need each other to live and pursue Jesus. I need people to point out, boy, you keep saying this thing about them. Are they a rival? No. I can't stand them. Maybe they are. We live not to shame each other. We live in community to point each other towards Jesus. He will always be at the center. And so if you need some time to confess on your own of these things that are going on, you, you just take your time. If you feel like you're at a place where you could celebrate the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus, this is for you. Come, break the bread, dip it in, surround the table and look at the faces that are not rivals, not competitors, or family made in the image of God. Jesus, I thank you that you rose bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you rose a cup and you said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And we celebrate and elevate you, Jesus, who has done what we cannot do. We cannot kill envy on our own. We cannot stop rivals on our own. We can do none of this outside of the power of the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. Not to shame, but for redemption. start a battle in a different direction, taking a step towards you, not an aggression towards others. We receive communion and your bread, your blood today. In Jesus' name.
morning I pray that God the source of hope will fill you completely this week with joy and peace because you trust in him then may you overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit would you go and love well this week in the name of Jesus amen Praise you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If anyone needs prayer, feel free. We will be back there to pray.